Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome back to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have Mark Talbot. Mark, welcome to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. I'm glad to be here, Dave. Thank you for agreeing to come on. Can you uh, just tell us about your life, marriage, ministry, and some of the current ministry projects that you're working on, brother? Sure. I'm 70. I've been married to Cindy for 43 years. We've got one daughter, Kim, who, in fact, is married to John, and they have three children. I'm a philosophy professor by trade at Wheaton College. Uh, I teach an intro course, a course on suffering, and a course on philosophical uh, anthropology that's called Nature of Persons. Right now, my main project is finishing this four-book series on suffering in the Christian life. Later this month, the first of the volumes comes out when the stars disappears, and then after that, one volume is supposed to appear each year for the next three years, Lord willing. Wonderful, brother. Well, I I really enjoyed uh, this book that you've written. Can you... uh, Tell us about When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope, uh, from stories of suffering in Scripture, why you wrote it, and how you hope it'll be received. It began as a response to the tragedy of one of my students, Dave, who was severely depressed and then committed suicide. And what it's meant to do is to confront head-on the sort of excruciating suffering that some of us as Christians will face in our lifetimes. What I hope is that it will help Christians realize that God does not in general, shield his children from suffering. Hebrews 12 makes that clear. And among other things, it suggests that suffering involves experiencing anything that is unpleasant enough that we'd like it to end. If you look at verse 11, that's where it comes up in Hebrews 12. And what that means is that we can experience a sort of mild or moderate suffering, even when we're just working conscientiously at our jobs, because sometimes doing our jobs well involves enough unpleasant that we just assume not be doing them, we'd like at the end. And in fact, that is uh, the kind of mundane day-by-day suffering that God sentenced Adam to in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. It was intended, that sort of suffering was intended to remind him virtually daily that something is wrong in our lives that only God can remedy. Now, with all of that in mind, if we understand suffering as unpleasantness, some of it uh, being pretty mild, some of it being excruciating, then we can see that the Old Testament records a great deal of suffering. I end up concentrating in this book on some of the stories of suffering in the Old Testament. And the reason I do is because Paul tells us in Romans 15:4 that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through, and, uh, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, I realize that it sounds kind of 
startling to say that the Old Testament stories of suffering are there to instruct and especially encourage us. But among other things, they help us to see the ways in which God's people tend to misinterpret and misunderstand their own suffering. book makes clear that Naomi, for instance, wanted her name permanently changed from pleasant to bitter because she thought that given her grief at the loss of her husband and her two sons, that she'd never again experience any pleasantness. The fourth chapter of Ruth counters that. Job, at one point, exclaims that his eye would never again see good. And then once again, when you look at the last chapter of his book, you realize that he was mistaken about that. So the book is meant to bring up those kinds of lessons from the Old Testament that help us to see the ways in which when we suffer, we quite often misunderstand and misinterpret what God is doing through that suffering. And uh, it's meant to help us then to endure that suffering and to understand that God is doing us good through it. Oh, you're so right. There's so much that we can learn from the Old Testament. I mean, you look at Joseph, you look at Moses, you look at uh, Jeremiah, you know, <laughs> Jeremiah kind of throws the whole idea of success, quote unquote, history <laughs> out the window. You know, it was a complete abysmal failure, according to contemporary evangelicals. And, That's right. That's yeah. right. And in fact, I end up talking about Jeremiah at length. I write about him at length because uh, Jeremiah doesn't have the same sort of worldly, what shall we call it, success that finally comes to Naomi and comes to Job. Uh, his life ends as a tragedy. We're not even told in the book that he died. Uh, and, and so the book, uh, the book actually reads as, um, as the narratives of people who have been abused and torture, tortured read. Uh, it just makes clear that it's not going to be in this life that God makes all things good. Well said. Mark, what's your own story of suffering? Well, when I was 17, I fell about 50 feet off a Tarzan-like rope swing, and I broke my back, and I became partially paralyzed from the waist down. I uh, spent six months in hospitals. Uh, the insurance companies wouldn't allow that nowadays. But when I left, I could walk awkwardly with one or two canes. Of course, there are all sorts of secondary things that happen when you're paralyzed that have been things that I've had to think about over the years, things that other people don't even realize that um, uh, they should thank God that various aspects of their physical uh, being is going well. As the years went by, it became more and more difficult for me to walk, and I took a spill in September of 2016 as I was leaving my study early on a Saturday morning and broke my left hip, and since then I've been wheelchair-bound. I think, though, I would want to stress that my deepest experience of suffering, my deepest experiences of suffering haven't involved my accident at all. Uh, they've had to do with things like getting deeply depressed when I was having a hard time finishing my doctoral dissertation. Uh, I had thousands of pages of notes, and yet I found that I couldn't pull them together into a coherent and clear narrative. And that was when I learned, and this took place over several years, the truth of the first verse of Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds this house, those who build it labor in vain. What I learned was this invaluable lesson that I need to rely on the Lord for everything. And that has led me always to pray as I work that the Lord will bless my efforts. Wonderful testimony, brother. And um, how, how is your hit doing now? 
<laughs> well, after a year, we had to replace it. They initially pinned it, but it turns out that when you're paraplegic or quadriplegic, that you end up with this wild bone growth. And so they had to go back and do surgery in order to replace it. And it's, um, I can get around in a wheelchair, but, um, but I don't think I'll ever be, I, I don't think I'll ever be walking again. It'd just be too dangerous. Well, sorry to hear that, brother, but uh, I'm, I'm thankful for your, your perspective and, and trust the client. Or that. That's very- uh, I, I think that the Lord really does make his grace sufficient for us in the things that we go through. What I've said to my wife several times, uh, particularly this summer as I'm finishing my second volume, there is nothing that I would rather do than spend the 10 or so hours I do six days a week uh, researching and writing the second volume by working really really hard at understanding scripture. And it's something that I can do despite my physical disability, and I can still take pleasure and delight in what I'm learning every day. I love hearing that. love hearing that. What does it mean to suffer profoundly, and how does suffering profoundly affect The way that I define or characterize profound suffering in the book is that it involves experiencing something so deep and disruptive that it dominates our consciousness, and it threatens to overwhelm us, and it often tempts us to lose hope that our lives can ever be good again. Both calamities, such as losing a child to suicide, and chronic conditions, such as maybe the continuous care of a disabled child or my students' seemingly never-ending struggle with depression, can produce profound suffering. Profound suffering, the way that I would put it, tends to burn the fat off our hearts. Uh, I, I found a passage that, that tends to corroborate that in Psalm 119, where the psalmist is praising God for the fact that he suffered. And what he says, this is in verses 65 to 75, he says, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. And then the line, their hearts, uh, their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. I know, O Lord, that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. And so the picture is that this psalmist, who we have every reason to think was very wealthy because of the time that he could take to craft that marvelous um, a bit of praise to God's word. The psalmist, by going through really awful things, had the fat burned off his heart in such a way that it was tender to the word of God. And he found himself at a place where he could thank God, in fact, for the fact that God had in faithfulness afflicted him. Yeah, that's really good. It reminds me of First Thessalonians, I think it's 521, where we're supposed to give Paul's hands, give thanks in all things. And, uh, you know, that that's just so, so important because tend to, you know, myself included, and I know many others, uh, tend to zero in when we're going through hard things and we just, I'm so, it becomes so all-encompassing and um, it's just so easy to zero in on those things. And I'm also reminded as I'm talking about it, about when we're supposed to look author and finish for our faith, you know, Christ in Peter 13, verse 8, it says that Jesus Christ is the same new day and forever more. So, you know, we can trust him in the midst of our trials. We don't have to zoom in on our trials and, and obsessively focus 
And even now, one thing that I've found really helpful is just not repeat those, you know, even just keeping repeating those thoughts about happening really good things. With an analytical mind, um, like I have, um, you can be obsessive about things and with them over and over I think that's right, Dave. What can we learn from the Psalms of Lament? Well, they actually teach us the very sorts of things that you were talking about, Dave, the way that we need to repeat things to ourselves and to remind ourselves while we're suffering um, uh, of what God has done for us in the past, what he promises to do for us in the future. Uh, I think their most important lesson is that no matter how bad things get, we mustn't stop talking to God. Uh, the way that I put it in the book is that they teach us breathing lessons, Profound suffering can take away our breath, so to speak. What the Psalms of Lament do is teach us how to breathe. Uh, in my book, I end up focusing on two breathing lessons. The first involves the fact that profound suffering can stifle our prayers by overwhelming us and by tempting us to think that God mustn't care if he didn't prevent the pain that we're going through, the very sort of thing that you were just talking about. And what the laments show is that this is exactly what we shouldn't allow our suffering to do to us. Because in fact, the laments are prayers seeking personal contact with God. They teach us to take all our sorrows, perplexities, and complaints straight to God. They show us, interestingly enough, that the psalmists never talked about God in their suffering. They always spoke to him. So in other words, no psalmist complains about God by referring to him in the third person. The psalmists never gossip about God or talk about him behind their back. They always complain directly to their Lord. And that is what makes their laments acts of faith. For in fact, they were then appealing to the special personal relationship they had with him. And they were showing him the respect of addressing him as the righteous, faithful person he was and trusting that he would act accordingly. And so they teach us that we must do the same. The second lesson is that the Psalms of Lament actually show us how to breathe. Uh, as acts of faith, they're little portraits of proper praying. Faithful praying has a rhythm that envelops our suffering in hopeful stories. And that rhythm has three crucial beats. The first is to remember what God has always done for his faithful people and for us in the past. The second is not to hold back, but to pray honestly, even if an honest prayer involves complaining to God about what is happening and expressing our outrage that he's allowing this to happen to us. The third beat is to remind ourselves of God's character, of his promises, of his previous wondrous acts for his people, and of his record of individualized care for us and for others as we've experienced it in the past. And by focusing on facts that made them confident that God would ultimately put things right, the psalmist countered their feelings with history and theological truth. So that second lesson involves inhaling truths from Scripture about what God has done in the past, exhaling our sorrows, fears, and complaints by speaking directly to God, and then inhaling more of the truth about God, his character, his promises, and his wonderful deliverance of others and us in the past. That rhythm of exhaling and inhaling is particularly clear in Psalm 22, which, of course, is the psalm that our Lord took on his lips
lips on the cross. He repeated only the first words, but we can be sure that he had the whole psalm in mind and that he probably was working through it to assure himself during the most horrible moments in his entire experience that his father still loved him and would bring things out right in the end. That is just so, so well said. You know, um, it's uh, the, the language of lament has been said as like the language of, of, of how we're supposed to express our emotion. And, you know, there, there's many days my parents have dementia, my mom diagnosed with Alzheimer's and uh, those are hard things. Yes. You know, language of lament gives us mission to take those things to God. And, and it, as God understands and he knows, and we know that he knows and he sees and cares for us in Christ, we can pour out our, our hearts before him. And, you know, the thing, that, what amazes me, you know, in Christ, Hebrews 4, summons us and he knows us. He even interceding for us, our advocate, the Father. That's just, those are those, those things. That's wonderfully important stuff. And um, we need, among other things, things to remind ourselves that there is nothing that we are experiencing that God isn't already aware of. And just as in a marriage, you might try to hide from your spouse the fact that you're having some difficulty with the relationship, and yet by trying to hide it, uh, you don't um, uh, give uh, each other the chance to work it through. So in the same way, to try to hide from God that we are upset um, uh, is ultimately counterproductive in the deepest way. What would you say to someone who says they don't think they should suffer? I would tell them that that isn't what scripture suggests. We don't usually notice how much and how intensely God's saints suffered in biblical times, because until we ourselves are suffering, we tend not to notice the stories of suffering in Scripture. We just go right past them. But in fact, the Old Testament makes it abundantly clear that God's Old Testament saints suffered a lot. And one of the reasons why I concentrate on the Old Testament in this first volume is because the Old Testament gives us longer stories with regard to the lives of people like Naomi and Job and Jeremiah. In the New Testament, Paul gives us a catalog of the ways that he sinned in 2 Corinthians, but um, it's more or less just a list of what has gone wrong rather than a sense of what it meant to go through those things. The Old Testament uh, spells that stuff out. But the New Testament then actually take uh, actually ups the ante and implies in passages like Romans eight sixteen and seventeen that all Christians will suffer because in fact what Paul says there is that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ but then the end of the verse is the important stuff. And it says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, all of these things about our being heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ are true if and only if we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The way that John Stott summed that up in his commentary on Romans was, no suffering, no glory. No suffering, no glory. And of course, other passages in the Old in the New Testament, like Romans five three through five and James uh, the first chapter verses two through four, take suffering to be a blessing. 
And in fact, in one of the most startling passages in the New Testament, Philippians 1.29, we learn that we should take our suffering to be a gift. It reads, for it has been granted. And the word for granted in the Greek means that it has been given or gifted to us. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, faith is a gift that none of us can boast, but also suffer for his sake. And so our suffering itself is a gift. And so anyone who says, well, I don't think I should suffer much as a Christian, um, is misunderstanding what Scripture itself tells us about uh, the character of the Christian life. Absolutely, I agree. There's two verses I wanted to read, too, just to kind of reinforce what you said. In John 16, 33, it says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Take heart, I have overcome. This is in the context of the the upper room discourse. This is a seminary-level education for the disciples. He's saying, you will have persecution. You will have it. You you can bank your $5. If that's not clear enough, uh, 2 Timothy 3.12, need all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That, that's the young Timothy and the church leaders. Hey, you want to live a godly life? That's what you can you can you can count on it. You'll be persecuted. I think the important stuff there, Dave, is that um, sometimes when I'm out speaking, people will come up to me and they'll say something like, "Well, I wish I had suffered more." And they are generally thinking in terms of physical suffering. They think that they would be um, uh, deeper as Christians if they had more physical suffering. But in fact, in the New Testament, um, uh, the main form of suffering is persecution. And going back to the seminary level education that our Lord was giving his disciples in John, he tells them in the 17th chapter that in this world you will have trouble. And he means persecution or tribulation. If we as Christians were just willing more often to um, testify to our faith in situations where we know it is unlikely to be welcome, uh, we would experience more persecution, but God would also bring more people to Christ through that. But what we tend to do is we tend to pull back and say, oh, no, I'm not going to say that if, in fact, it's likely to get dirty looks from somebody. Oh, you're so right. Uh, I say it this way, the more you think about if you have a problem with evangelism or those kind of things, you think more about where of God's grace. The more you think of God, glories of God's grace, uh, the more you'll be able, willing to share and and and, and live in a whole manner that pleases God. The more you'll be able to share God's grace. You can't help the Spirit. Well, the more you think about the glory of God's grace, where you'll want to testify it. it. I think that's yeah, that's right. Think think of what Paul says in the first chapter of Second Corinthians, where he uh, testifies to the fact that he and Timothy suffered uh, stuff that was so awful that they despaired of life itself. And yet Paul said, we went through that for the good of the Corinthians so that uh, we then could empathize with you and we could um, help you in your suffering. And that was part of both evangelism and sanctification, the fact that he could then speak to people of what God did in Christ, and he could also um, urge them to be sanctified through the difficulties that they would be going through. That's that's so good. 
What is the best way to help a friend who is suffering online? Well, if uh, the friend is right in the midst of a terrible storm of suffering, it's almost always inappropriate to try to suggest that their suffering isn't as bad as it seems. Uh, we are to grieve with those who are grieving, which I think quite often when people are at the worst of uh, their states of suffering, it means that uh, we quite often should just be available to listen to them, even as we pray that as the storm of their suffering subsides, the Holy Spirit will help us to know what to say to encourage them and to build them back up in their faith. Yeah, that, that's really good. Um, you know, I, whenever whenever uh, somebody's going through something, I just want to listen. You know, that That's the most found ministry um, that I can offer to somebody. And I want to, probably the first time they're sharing, I don't want to say much about them, and then I'll just pray for them. That's right. I've learned that from seasoned uh, pastors. Um, I've experienced that. And uh, then, then, you know, maybe down the road, you a couple times and keep talking. You want to you know, ask them, again, just let them talk and then pray. And then um, that, that really is a, a powerful thing that you never say anything. I always just want to be really slow to say much um, unless I've, you know, don't say uh, I wouldn't be slow. I think that's right, Dave. You mentioned seasoned pastors. I once asked a uh, pastor friend of mine out in California, in fact, um, uh, when he said to me that there was going to be a person in the audience that evening who had lost his wife six months ago and was grieving extremely deeply. I said to him, Steve, uh, how long do you think it takes for someone to get over really deep grief? And he immediately answered about seven years. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, there's something that is called subjective well-being that can actually be objectively measured. And they have been able to show that when people lose someone that they love really, really dearly, that they're getting back to feeling as... Um, uh, as well as they felt before that loss takes about seven and a half years. And so the interesting thing is that empirical psychology here, not, not just clinical psychology, but empirical psychology, which can actually deal with this data, that in fact, it shows what this pastor knew directly. And of course, things start to get better as we go along. Uh, it's not going to be as bad a year or two out as it is in the first six months or in the first few weeks, just read C.S. Lewis's Grief Observed, and you find out how much he was grieving initially after the death of his wife. But in fact, getting to the place that finally life uh, seems uh, to be as good as it was before we've lost someone we dearly love is a years-long process. I would, uh, I would dare say that, you know, when we go through very hard things like that, that, you know, you're probably never going to, it's never going to be, and part of dealing with that and learning to embrace what we call the new normal, and to realize each day is new, as Lamentation 321 says, each day is new and the mercy, you can face those with all yeah, we see that with Job. While Job in um, the final chapter of his book is experiencing all sorts of good again, uh, I'm sure that he never got completely over the fact that he had lost all of his children. Um, uh, that would have been something that would have stayed with him. If you think about St. Paul, um, Paul was uh, whipped five times and beaten with rods three times. And uh, if you know what that whipping involved, the fact that it was meant actually to 
to um, uh, break the flesh and that it would have caused scar tissue. My hunch, and I think it's more than a hunch, is that uh, Paul, by being whipped and, and beaten that often, probably had so much scar tissue on his chest and back that he couldn't have taken a really deep breath. Uh, and yet, this is the main witness of the New Testament to the fact that nothing can separate us from God, no matter how bad it is. And that tells us that it's not as if things uh, get better in such a way that it's not as if you haven't been through the suffering. It's instead that God gives you grace to live with what you've called this new normal. Well said, Brother Perhaps the greatest lesson of Scripture regarding our suffering that we must learn to endure. Why is this perhaps Scripture's greatest lesson about? Well, Hebrews 10.38 quotes the Old Testament about the fact that God's righteous ones must live by faith, and that if we fail to do so, he will take no pleasure in us. Hebrews tells us that we need endurance to live by faith, do God's will, and thus receive his promises. That's in verse 36 of chapter. Uh, 10. And it is that point especially uh, that is emphasized in its 11th and 12th chapters. Um, the 11th and 12th chapters uh, remind us of our Lord's endurance and uh, at the beginning of chapter 12, which then goes on to say that all of God's children will experience his discipline, which is never pleasant, but which, if we endure it, always, in fact, um, uh, it, it teaches us that uh, his discipline is never pleasant, but which, if we endure it, will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, exercising faith means trusting God's eschatological promises, even as we remind ourselves that those promises will never find their true fulfillment in this world. We know by faith that God has prepared a future homeland for us, which will be, as Hebrews puts it in chapter 12, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's going to descend from heaven at the consummation. And when it does, it will bring us into God's everlasting presence and deliver us from all suffering, as is talked about in Romans, I mean, Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Because God's Old Testament saints desired that city, as it's put in chapter 11 of Hebrews, and thus showed themselves to have embraced their Lord's redemptive storyline, we're told in chapter 11, verse 16, that he was not ashamed to be called their God. Hebrews 11 shows that acknowledging that the story is unfinished is, in fact, essential to biblical faith. Hoping for what is not yet is essential to embracing the Christian storyline. Having faith and having hope are two sides of the same coin, as it's put in the first verse of Hebrews 11. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. So it's by faith and in hope that we are saved as we wait with anticipation and assurance for the culmination of God's plan for us and the world. Both faith and hope focus on what's yet unseen, and until our Lord returns, all of God's saints must live by faith and hope and not by sight. That's the essence of what it means to endure as Christians 
through all of the hardships of our lives. Well said, brother. Well said. It's, it's not unusual for us to despair when we're suffering profoundly. How can biblical stories like Naomi's, Job's, and Jeremiah's, and the psalmist encourage us not to do that? Well, the way that Johnny Erickson has put it is that their mistakes and victories teach us lessons of endurance. It is as we, so to speak, live with the Old Testament saints or sit with the Old Testament saints with people like Naomi. Naomi, Job, and Jeremiah, and the psalmists, and especially with David, whose first five psalms are all laments. It's as we live and we sit with them, seeing their suffering through their eyes, that we begin to understand how our loving God works through suffering for the good of his people. Well said, well said. Where, where can people go to find out more about your work online and those type of things? Well, most of my stuff is available only on academic websites, so people aren't going to be able to get at those easily. Uh, there's some of it at um, Christian Scholars Fund, all done, all one word, dot org. Uh, that's the organization that supports my research and writing and has allowed me to work on these books, Christian Scholars Fund dot org. That includes not only some written stuff, but some audio recordings. Uh, some of it's, in fact, found on John Piper's Desiring God website, and some of it could be gotten by people writing to the philosophy department at Wheaton. Uh, that would be philosophy at wheaton.edu and um, asking our office uh, coordinator um, uh, if I could send them things. Brother, well, great to learn about that. I encourage our listeners to check that out. Um, you know, there's a lot that we haven't covered in the course of this interview. Just as we wrap up, do you have any takeaways for our listeners? Well, I would suggest that the perhaps the most important thing is that we remind ourselves and each other to read our Bibles and to read all of Scripture, uh, and in particular, not to scrimp on the Old Testament, and to remember that we mustn't approach Scripture as if it's a manual telling us how to succeed in this earthly life. I think that in order to counter the prosperity gospel and the Christianity light of our day, we need to stop implying that Christians can become mature in their faith by being exposed to Scripture and just little bite-sized pieces. Becoming the people of God calls us to renew our minds, which requires steady work. It has to be prioritized above everything else. I think that we need to tithe our time to God and not merely our money. And I'd suggest that that, uh, that since there's 168 hours in the week and about 100 hours of those are at our disposal, that that might mean about an hour to an hour and a half of thinking about God's word and praying every day. Uh, Proverbs 4, 4 through 7, makes clear how we have to think about these things. The author of Proverbs says, Then my father taught me, and he said to me, Take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands, and you will live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, though it cost you all you have. 
get understanding. That last phrase, which in fact, this is the NIV, that the end of uh, verse 7 uh, can be translated more than one way, but I think this is the best way to do it. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding, tells us that we are to prioritize our life before God, and particularly the ways that we are to grow in the ways that Paul urges us in Romans 12, 1 and 2. We are to prioritize that above everything else, and that if we do that, it is going to involve both our time and our treasure. Amen, brother. Very, very well said. Well, Mark, I really have enjoyed this conversation today, and I so appreciate your time, and the, the, this conversation has been very encouraging. Thank you, brother, for your ministry and your work in this book, and I need to pray for uh, future projects. Thank you. It's been really, it, it's been a delight to talk with you, Dave. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.